Good morning and welcome to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm. Today is Wednesday, December the 9th, 2020. And yesterday we had the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And on the 12th, we will have the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, the Feast of Our Patroness for Our Country, the United States, and the Feast of the Patroness of Our Hemisphere, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, this program, all of this program is going to be pre-recorded. I have a guest here uh, with me in the studio. I consider him a guest, Thaddeus Romanski. Good morning, Gene. Thank you for those kind words, and it's great to be with you on this Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And uh, I will, we have on the phone waiting for us to talk uh, uh, somebody that I've talked with before, uh, Anthony Stefano. Uh, he has a new book out. Uh, that is just, is exciting to me. Uh, the book he had last year was uh, The Seed That Didn't Want to Be Planted, which uh, spoke volumes to me, as did this one. Uh, good morning, Anthony, and how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Good morning to you, and thanks so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I, I, I just really enjoy you, and I enjoy your books. Uh, as, as I was telling you uh, right before we went on the air, uh, I... I both of these books have spoken to me, and, and they are great Christmas presents, but both of them, uh, it's almost as though you have written them so that the person that's reading to the child will get a message as well. I, I most certainly do. Uh, I don't want to just write for children. I'm very aware that uh, grandparents and parents and older siblings and aunts and uncles are reading these books. And uh, I want to evangelize them, too. I want, to, I want them to read these books and say, hey, I didn't realize that before. Uh, so these books are really, they're modeled on, um, on, on the gospel, uh, the, the parables of Jesus. Uh, they're not any, anything anywhere as good, naturally. But, uh, you know, when Jesus spoke, he spoke in a way that anyone could understand, that children and, and poor people and unlettered people could understand. But also, people as, as, as uh, the greatest theologians and philosophers in the world, like Thomas Aquinas, uh, have analyzed those parables because there's depth of meaning. And I, I'd like my books, if possible, to have at least some of that. That's what I aspire to anyway. And, you know, I've taught Bible studies for about 10 years or so, and it's amazing to me that the parables seem so straightforward, and yet sometimes people do not understand the significance of the parable or why it's in the gospel. So your explanation of, of, of this particular uh, story is is really relevant to me, and I think to a lot of people. And I, I don't remember what I mentioned. It's called the grumpy old ox and uh i am grumpy and i am old and and as i was saying i no one would think that i am uh graceful enough to be even considered an ox but so i relate to this book well that's good i hope so i relate to it too i think i think children can relate to it because children often can be you know spoiled and feel entitled to things and they get grumpy when they don't get their way but also adults very, uh, you know, um, likely do get have a tendency to get grumpy as they get older, and I hope that they uh, will recognize themselves uh, the, the, that that they too can experience the same kind of miracle that the ox in this book does. You know, it's never too late to change. As long as there's life, there's hope. Yes, there is. And the other thing in the book, uh, the ox did not do a very good well of accepting the circumstances of life that came as he got older. Uh, as it, the way I read the book is that he had what appeared to be cataracts and severe arthritis or something of that nature, and he, he didn't do very well with that. 
No, no, he is actually he's an old, uh, mean-spirited, grumpy, blind ox. He's practically blind. But luckily for him, he's, he, he lives in the stable in which uh, our Lord is born 2,000 years ago. And because of that, he was able to experience uh, uh, the miraculous power of God's grace, a, a miracle that affects his sight both spiritually and physically. And so, yes, the, the ox um, does have these physical problems, but just as in the Gospels, whenever Jesus heals someone of a physical problem, it's always something deeper underneath. There's always... Uh, there's always a spiritual blindness, uh, you know, uh, and, and God came to feed the hungry and to restore sight to the blind and set free the captives. Those who are captives to sin, and that's why the, the ox in this book is lame and can't walk, because he's, he's captive. He can't, he, he's not free. He's a slave, as all those are, people are slaves who are prideful. Pride is a very terrible sin. It's the first of the sins. And, uh, and, 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 and pride enslaves us to our, it cripples us with, because of the coldness that we have. And it leads to anger and alienation and loneliness. And it was the devil's sin. It's the reason why uh, the, de- the demons fell and why human beings fell in the garden. And the only remedy for it is, uh, is humility. And that's what the ox runs into in this stable. He sees humility, uh, God emptying himself. Uh, this God the Father emptying himself in, into the form of a human and, and a, a little baby. No greater example of humility than that. And, the and thing that's that, why he has an insight. The thing that amazed me is that uh, you've written it such that the ox seems to have empathy for this uh, beleaguered holy family. And uh, one of the things that struck me about the whole situation was uh, – he was willing to give up his manger so that the child would have a place to lay. And he actually, I guess, pushed the manger over to where uh, the baby Jesus could be put in the manger. And he somehow communicated yes, yes, with he, Mary. First, well, he first has an insight into this, this child that must be from heaven because he's, he's so beautiful and pure, and, less, and yet he's suffering. The family is suffering. And yet they're adored. You know, the kings are coming in and worshiping uh, them. Uh, they're being given gifts. The animals are kneeling down. He recognizes that this stable is so full of love uh, because this child is so humble. And meanwhile, he, the old ox, is grumpy and, 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 and prideful and, and unhappy and miserable. So he sees that. And, he, and, and, and as with all faith, when you get a true uh, hint of faith, you want to act. Faith is always connected to action, and so he tries to pull over his manger so that the baby could sleep there, and his pail of water so that the baby could be washed. And of course, this is all very uh, Eucharistic. Manger, um, in Italian, the word mangiare means to eat, and a manger is where stable animals eat their food out of yes. their hay. And Bethlehem itself means house of bread. You know, it's no accident that the bread, that Jesus, who's the bread of life, was born in a town called House of Bread. And, and, and laying in a manger where people, where animals eat from. You know, God is a great author, the author of life. He uses a lot of symbolism in his writing. And if I remember correctly, the ox, part of the ox's healing is when he eats a little bit of the hay. Yes, and that, that's right. And that's the Eucharistic element of this book. He eats the hay uh, where the Christ child slept, and he drinks out of the water where the Christ child was bathed in. And of course, Jesus is, is not only the bread of life, but he's the source of living water. 
and whoever drinks from this water will never thirst again. So yes. he undergoes almost kind of a baptism in a way. Yes, I was and, thinking and, that. And it's because of that, that that he receives this new life, which a baptism does. It conveys new life in, in Christ Jesus. The other thing that uh, occurred to me as I was reading it uh, when uh, the the light came into the stable so brightly that even the ox could see is another thing of where Jesus says he's the light of the world. Yes, and he's the uh, light of the world, and the star is a symbol of that. The, the star shining into that dark, dank, miserable, cold stable, and the light warms it, lights it up uh, with love. Uh, in, in the book, uh, our, uh, Mary it plays a very prominent role. She's really the uh, person that interacts with the, the ox, and they seem to be able to communicate uh, uh, can you tell us uh, what was going on in your mind when you created this relationship between Mary and the ox? Yes. Well, this book is for all Christians. It's not an explicitly Catholic book, but, 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 it, but it is very Marian, and I have a very strong devotion to Our Lady. So all my books have these Marian undertones, and, and in this book, the ox stays at Our Lady's feet on the night of the Nativity. He tries to help her after she gives birth by providing a pail of water in which she can wash the baby Jesus and a place for the babe to sleep. So it's, he's really, it's really by helping her that he eventually receives his great miracle from Jesus. And the theological reason, of course, is that Catholics believe Mary has a great role to play as a mediatrix of all graces. She has the great honor and privilege of dispensing the gifts and graces that come from her son, Jesus Christ. So I wanted that interaction to be there between the ox and Mary, because it is but through Mary uh, that, that we receive all of these graces won by her son. Now, you've written some other uh, Christmas books. Uh, one of them that uh, is The Little Star, which I have to confess that I haven't read uh, so how does this yes. compare with the little star? Uh, you know, uh, first of all, I think there can never be too many Christmas books that, that uh, tell children the true story of Christmas. Because the, the holiday has been so over-secularized, it's almost unrecognizable. That story is about the first Christmas, too. It's about how a little star is the smallest star in the heavens. But on the night of the nativity, he looks down to earth. He sees the holy family. He sees that they're cold, that they have no place to stay, that they're in this inn. And he has a strong desire to reach out and touch them and warm the stable. And so even though he's the smallest star in the heavens, he burns brightly all night long, lighting the stable and warming it. And he actually burns himself out. Um, and, and, and in a way, he's very Christ-like. He gives every bit of himself for, for, for the Holy Family. And, and though he does die, in a way, he also experiences a resurrection, which is because, well, it, it, the reward he gets from God is that every year we place on top of our Christmas trees a star in remembrance of this, of this star of Bethlehem. So it, really that story is about love, the true meaning of love. Love is the most abused, overused, misused word in the English language. What, it's, what, real, what it really means is, is self-giving, sacrificial love. And, and Little Star tells the story of the nativity from the standpoint of love. This story, the grumpy old ox, tells the story of the nativity through, through pride versus humility, and that, which is really the essence of the whole salvation story, the, the pride, the fall, and then redemption. Uh, I want to get some more I want to ask you, but uh, in the, before we go to that, if somebody wants to buy this book, which I think would be just an excellent book to give for Christmas, 
to a child or even to somebody that needs to hear this message that's open to reading a children's book to, to get the message that God has for them, how would they go about getting that? Well, you know, it's it's so funny. The uh, the the uh, the Sophia Institute Press that published it has run out of the books, and EWTN has has run out, and, and I think Amazon right now is the is the place that has it, uh, that has it, and they're rushing to print out, get a new printing here in the next few days. I think it's surprised everybody how how just how well it would do. And of course, I'm gratified. It's a nice problem to have. But I think the quickest, best way to get it right now is through Amazon. And again, the title of the book is The Grumpy Old Ox. And how, just curiosity, how, what was the first printing that you've run out of? I, you know, I don't even know. I'll have to ask the publisher about well, that's that. Okay. It, was in the, it was in many, 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 many thousands. So, <laughs> and, so what you're saying... It all ran out... <laughs> Uh, very quickly, which is a great problem to have, and I'm very happy about it. But uh, I think they ran out of Little Star too. So okay. uh, next year we better, you know, better be more prepared. Yeah, uh, it it may tell something about the stories that you write and how people are uh, are touched by them. Uh, so you really touch hearts. Uh, we got just about a minute and a quarter, or something like that, uh, about a minute maybe. Uh, one of the other things that I saw in in the healing of the ox was first was the he, the healing of the blind man or the Bartimaeus that it almost seemed as though I saw that story in his healing and also the story of the person who uh, uh, was uh, lowered through the roof to be healed uh, who was yes. a cripple and so I think very much that that was there and I I. I, I just appreciate you and, and, and all the effort that you put into everything. One more time, where can they get the book and the title of the book? Because we're going to be sure. running out of time here. Sure. The Grumpy Old Ox, and it's available at Amazon.com. You can try your local Christian Catholic bookstores. And, uh, and you can go to my website, AnthonyDeStefano.com, just to get more information on these books and what they're about and, and, and all my other books. There's about 22 of them, I think. Okay. Anthony DeStefano, thank you so much. Get the book. It's great. Uh, we'll be back right after the break uh, with another guest, uh, another Italian-American, Joe Cerami. Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm, and welcome to the second half of our pre-recorded all-Italian-American guest program that we're having this week. Uh, we had uh, Anthony Stefano in the first part where we talked about his book, The Grumpy Old Ox, and now we have Joe Cerami. Uh, who is a resident of the Bryan College Station area. And he res has uh, what I would call a rather colorful and unusual uh, family uh, life history that we're going to talk about. And then he's got a lot of wisdom uh, that he's going to share with us. And, and I've heard him share this wisdom before. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. I, I wish that you were able to call in and uh, have a conversation with Joe because uh, he's 
He's really a great guy. How you doing, Joe? Thank you for coming in today. No, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate that. Now, you you are uh, like our guest in the first part of the program. You're from Brooklyn. I am. Uh, and so, uh, so, and you didn't live in the German section of Brooklyn, did you? <laughs> no, I, I, I describe it as a little Sicilian village. Uh, my street was was very, it, it was multidimensional and multicultural, but my my end of the block was all Sicilian, and I was related to most of the people that were my neighbors. Yeah. Did your grandparents live on that street too, close by, or just uncles and aunts, my, and cousins? Uh, my Sicilian uh, paternal uh, father, grandfather and grandmother, uh, Joseph and Mary. Yeah, I have a Joseph and Mary Wilhelm as my uh, grandparents. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> pretty common where I grew up. Everybody was Joe or Mike or Frank uh, during the during the days of baby boomers growing up. Mm-hmm. So what? So was uh, Italian a, a language that was spoken on the streets and in the homes at that point in time, or was it pretty much English? You know, it, it's interesting because I was listening to a, a, a podcast from a, a couple that broadcasts out of Sicily, and the, the guy's Italian-American. He was saying that when he was a boy, and he grew up in Massachusetts, the Boston area has a lot of uh, Sicilians mm. and Italians also, but he, he learned Sicilian dialect, and... and uh, when he went back to Sicily to live, he found out that the Italian uh, schools had only taught Italian, so the Sicilian dialect was actually dying out. But I'd asked my mo- my grandmother Mary when when I was young. I said, "Why don't you teach us Italian?" And she said, "Well, that's because I speak Sicilian, and and uh, you would never learn the correct way to to speak Italian if you just, learned from me." Just as a diversion uh, here, is a Sicilian more? Uh, Different from like Chicago English from the Deep South English back in the turn of the century or the nineteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Apparently, it is because if if you're from the the northern Italy, especially, you would uh, not enjoy or appreciate listening to the Sicilian dialect. Sicilian dialect cuts off a lot of the ends of words, so it sounds much more guttural. So it's Mm -hmm. not as sophisticated Mm -hmm. sounding and not as melodic as the the northern Italian is. Now, you were raised in a very uh, Catholic family also, were you not? Yeah, there was no uh, doubt about it. Uh, we, our, our, our lives in, in all areas really centered around our, our Catholic parish. Uh, the area I grew up in, in southeast corner of Brooklyn, was named Canarsie, and it had been the old dairy farms for the original Dutch settlers, and it was wetlands. So it took a while, and it was in the 1920s when it still started to flourish uh, with the building of homes. So, so my grandparents, Joseph and Mary, they they came from from uh, nearby villages in Sicily, but they didn't know each other. They came to America, lived on the the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and then uh, they and and the people from their village areas all uh, purchased lots when the city opened up the wetlands for development. And so that's why there were, there were so many neighbors that we were all related, and they were all friends who had come to America at the same time mm-hmm. now, from the same area. So you you went to Catholic school? Yeah, the the we had a Monsignor Monsignor Genoa who was very prominent in uh, the hierarchy in the diocese of Brooklyn, and and he built a beautiful church, and, uh, and then he insisted on building an elementary school. And so uh, uh, he also insisted uh, that all the parent Catholic parents would send their children to that Catholic school, and we all went. And so uh, the, the the class, my my graduation picture from the eighth grade is 
there's about 35 or 40 of us and, and there's like uh, 30 were Italian and, and, and there were a couple of Lithuanians, a couple of Poles, a couple of Germans and actually only one African-American in that class that graduated. So he really s- stood out in the class photo when you see him. Well, I'm sure some of the blonde uh, Germans did too. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did as well. So did you go on to Catholic high school then? You know, I, I, I probably uh, should have, but my dad was was a, what you would call an economic conservative. And so there was a very good uh, engineering uh, school. It was one of the four main uh, schools you had to take tests to get into. And it was very highly regarded. It's called Brooklyn Tech High School. It was an engineering school. So I went there instead. That's Was that kind of like what we would call a magnet school these days? Yeah. Yeah. There were only four, Stuyvesant in Manhattan, uh, Bronx School of Science, uh, Brooklyn Tech, uh, and then I won't I won't mention the fourth one because it's not really recognized as that important. But those are the schools you went to if, if you wanted to uh, be on a college-bound program. So Brooklyn Tech was that mainly for pre-engineering yes. for college? Yeah, we took a complete pre-engineering curriculum. Uh, not much on languages, uh, n- nothing on biology, a couple of English courses, but very heavy on on math and science. Well, that prepared you a great deal for where you went to college then. It did. Uh, I went uh, from there to to, uh, West Point, the military academy uh, still to this day gives uh, a bachelor of science in engineering. And especially in in that time, there were not a lot of majors. Now they're a lot more open to international affairs, political sciences and stuff. But back then it was strictly an engineering school with a seven electives in the four-year program. Wow, that's not very many. Now, what's the process that you get in you, at that time to go there? And, and why did you go to West Point? Why did you choose to go to West Point? Uh, well, the, uh, the opportunity to uh, be in the military uh, for five years as an officer had a lot of appeal to me at the time. It, it seemed like a good way to kickstart any career that I would have wanted to go into. Uh, the engineering background helped me a lot, and uh, I loved the the sports and athletics at West Point. They had really well-developed intramural programs as well. I, I knew I wasn't going to play inter- intercollegiate football, but I could play intramural uh, touch football at West Point, and that was a draw to me as well. It wasn't very far from home, uh, 50 miles up the Hudson River, and we'd been there when I was in the Cub Scouts and seen it, and uh, it's it, it was a real challenge, and I was actually very surprised when I was able to get in, but very happy that uh, they chose me. And the tuition is great. The, uh, yeah, the, <laughs> it's a very democratic process to get in. You, you mo- for most of the people that get in, uh, apply through their congressman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the Congress member can, uh, nominate up to five candidates and, uh, he appoints one as a primary and four as alternates. And then West Point screens you, and you have a physical exam and uh, a uh, uh, kind of an athletic uh, physical fitness test that you take. And then, of course, they look at your grades. You have to get letters of recommendations. It's a very extensive program to get in, but it's very democratic that way. And so you wind up with, between the Congress members and the senators, uh, you wind up with uh, students from across the country. And so it was a real eye-opener for me because I'd never lived outside of Brooklyn, plus I was... 17 years old and didn't have much life experience. So it was pretty interesting uh, opportunity for me, and I'm, I'm glad I, I took advantage of it. I'm just curious, uh, did you develop some friendships there with people that you never would have thought that you would have been friends with? 
Well, yeah, I just the, the fact that you had the opportunity to meet so many people and, and all, and I, I don't think, uh, looking back on it, I don't, I don't think any of my closest friends were from anywhere in the New York metropolitan area. They were from California, Texas, especially. They always, uh, you always knew who the Texans were. Oh, they, you should, they made I'm sure themselves you did. <laughs> well known, and uh, but very, they couldn't wear friendly. their boots. Uh, well, they could when they were on on weekend leave and stuff. Uh, but yeah, one of my, my best friends was from Austin, Texas, uh, actually, and, and he never stopped talking about how great Texas was, and that kind of uh, kept my interest in the state, and uh, so when I had the opportunity to go back to graduate school on an Army-funded program, I was stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and uh, the, the department I was going to go teach in at West Point said, you can, you can go anywhere that has a, a good international affairs program. And so because I was in Oklahoma, I got to visit Austin and, and uh, uh, meet with the University of Texas uh, government department faculty. And that's where I, I did my master's degree. So that gave me two years in Texas. So what is your master's degree in, Joe? Uh, the first master's I got uh, was in uh, government department at uh, UT Austin. Uh, and then later on, the Army, uh, uh, I went to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas and got another master's degree in it was called something different, but it was basically military history and military operations. It's always better to be at the military installation in Leavenworth than the other place that it's noted for, correct? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> tell me a little bit about, or tell our, our audience a little bit about uh, Catholicism at West Point. Was was it was it openly practiced, or, or were the chaplains there good, or how did that work? Well, it was it was very prominent when when I went there. I was there sixty seven to seventy one, which is ancient times now. But there was mandatory chapel, and one of the first things they did with you when you came in for the summer training called be Beast Barracks. Not a very graceful way to put it, but it was our basic training. Uh, they they divided us up into squads uh, based on our religion, and we had uh, we would march off to chapel every Sunday. Uh, in formation with our platoon, our Catholic platoon, and with the Catholic squad leaders and all of that. Uh, and then uh, they would have uh, social activities uh, once a week, usually to, to kind of get away from the, the drill of the basic training part. And, uh, the priests there were, were handpicked. They were very good, very, uh, looking back on it, they were really highly qualified for what they were doing. And uh, all four years we went to church. It was only... After I left, I think it was like in 74, where, where one of the cadets had launched a Supreme Court, it got up to the Supreme Court, and uh, it, uh, they ruled that uh, mandatory chapel was not permissible. So after that, it, it became optional. But there's still a strong pres religious presence at West Point, and there's a, uh, the main chapel is, is, of course, Protestant, and then there's a, a big Catholic chapel, and they just... Uh, uh, within the last 10 years, they built a, uh, a new synagogue for the Jewish cadets as well. So religion is very prominent in the West Point educational process. Tell us a little bit about your uh, military career after you graduated from West Point. You alluded a little bit that you that the uh, Army encouraged a couple of uh, master's programs that you did, but get you straight out of uh, West Point. And so where do you get assigned? Well, uh, uh, everything... Again, this was really old school. Everything uh, back when I was a cadet was based on your class rank. And so you were graded on every class for every lesson just about. Okay. And so uh, they rank ordered you. And, and based on your rank order, you got to select the, the branch that you went into. 
the engineers were typically the, the branch that went out at about 100. There were about 800 in my class that graduated. Uh, I chose field artillery, and uh, I wanted to be a combat arms officer. And I, I just uh, got a sense from uh, seeing the instructors who were field artillery officers that, that, that was, they were kind of the role models that I enjoyed being around. What was, the, what was it about these uh, former field officers that attracted you and, and made you want to go into that area? I, what I liked about the field artillery officers, they were always really well organized, and they were very uh, uh, thoughtful in the way they approached things. Uh, infantrymen are great. They tend to be the ones that are, that are physically fit and can run and, and uh, do all the physical things that an infantryman has to do. You know, people that have a background in camping, hunting, mm-hmm. hunting and camping are very, very happy to be in the infantry usually. Uh, the other combat arms were armored officers uh, who, who uh, were in tank units. I, I did a summer uh, month uh, they called it a third lieutenant program in uh, uh, Friedberg, Germany, with a tank unit, and I didn't like bouncing around inside a tank. Uh, I can we, understand we did that. that Hohenfeld. So, the field artillery was, was kind of a, a easy choice for me to make. You mentioned the organization, and what little I know of you from the few times we've had an opportunity to be together, I can see where that would really appeal to you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, INTJ, if you do the Myers-Briggs type indicator. I, what is it, INTJ? INTJ. Oh, yeah, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember what mine is, but it's very close. Yeah. <laughs> so you you started out there. So you, did, did, when, is that when you got assigned to Fort Sill? Well, you, you go, I went to Fort Sill three times because that was my branch school. So you did the basic course when you're a lieutenant. As a captain, you went back for the advanced course. And then as a major, I was able to go back there and, uh, and serve in a, a battalion as an executive officer. My first active duty coming out of West Point, you go through a lot of training. So I did the, the basic course, but I also did uh, airborne training and ranger school. And then my first assignment was in the 82nd Airborne Division, very famous division. Yes. And I was with the paratroopers there for over two years and then went to Germany to the 3rd Armored Division. So I went back into uh, the tank did, country. Did you do any jumps when you were in the paratroopers? Uh, 30, Trump, 30 jumps. I was a jump master, qualified, and uh, senior parachutist is what it was. And those were all interesting. I remember most of them, not all of them. Uh, if I remember correctly, something else interesting happened to you at Fort Sill, didn't it? Not, didn't it? Yes, of course. I met my wonderful wife there. <laughs> well, she she wasn't part of the training program, was she? No, she was uh, uh, working in uh, uh, the area. It was called training developments back then, the combat developments, so where, where they do the R&D center. And I, I met her there, uh, and I was working after I'd graduated from the advanced course, getting ready to go to UT uh, to get my master's degree. And, and she and I had conversations in the hallway and, and uh, what. Whatnot, and then uh, she said she had been interested in going down to the University of Texas, possibly, and she was thinking about SMU and some others. And uh, I said, "Well, look, if you if you come down to Austin, you know, look me up, and I'll help you." So she did, and, and we started dating then, and, and got married uh, after two years uh, at UT Austin. Isn't it interesting, God's sense of humor and how He works? Yes, uh, it, it, we talk about that all the time because I could have gone to the University of Virginia, or the University of Washington for grad school. Uh, but I picked UT, and, and everything else in my life kind of evolved from that choice, which... Well, that's great. 
which was kind of interesting when I think about it now because it really didn't have a lot of uh, logic behind it other than I, I, I loved uh, the Southwest. Uh, I really wanted the opportunity to live in Texas for a while, and, and uh, I was fortunate enough to meet Linda here. Uh, those of you that are listening, uh, I'm being remiss here in not reminding you who my guest is today, Joe Sarami, who's a retired uh, Army officer who has a lot of life after that as well. And so what else happened on, on in, in, during your career? Did, did you, went, you went on and got a Ph.D., did you not? I did. Uh, I, I really wanted mostly operational artillery assignments. That's where most of the fun is, troop, troop leadership. Most officers will tell you that uh, there are exceptions, but most don't want to work in the Pentagon, don't want to be on high-level staffs, would prefer working with soldiers and doing the training mission that the Army uh, does when, when there's not a wartime environment. Uh, so I, I did that up uh, through my 22nd year. I had my last field artillery battalion assignment, which was a wonderful opportunity. Uh, it was uh, in NATO uh, in uh, far northern Germany, which is, was very different assignment than I'd been used to. I'd previously been in Germany in the South with the 3rd Armored Division. Uh, but after that, uh, because I'd had the background and I taught uh, international affairs at West Point, I, I was able to get a position on the faculty at the Army War College, Carlisle Barracks. And that's where the Army trains colonels that they want to be senior level staff officers and some generals. Also, a lot of international students, a lot of the ministers of defense of, of foreign armies come out of the Army War College as well. And so while I was there, I was fortunate because I had the background of teaching political science, international affairs at West Point. And I had a civilian uh, chairman of the department I was in, and he, he saw me teaching and, and, and we interacted well. And he said, uh, he saw something in me, said, I, I think you ought to get a Ph.D. and think about getting into to university teaching after you retire. So I, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that, but I, I had time because I'd been granted tenure at the Army War College, so I knew I would stay there till the end of my, my military career. So I enrolled in Penn State, uh, and they had a program about a half an hour away in public administration, so I enrolled in that. And uh, I really wanted to study military history, but... The, the Temple was the closest program, and that was two and a half hours on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So uh, just because of the, the situation I found myself in, uh, the public administration program worked out well for me. That's, I understand that. Now, is, is your career path typical of someone who comes out of West Point? Well, not typical, but there's, there were a number of us. I mean, when I wound up at the Army War College, uh, I was with my peer group, so so officers from uh, who graduated from West Point in 70, 71, 72, and a couple earlier. The ones that had become colonels uh, were not in brigade-level commands uh, or slated on, on a general officer fast track. A lot of us wound up at West Point, or I'm, I'm sorry, a lot of us from West Point wound up at the Army War College, and, and that was really a wonderful assignment. Uh, as well, a lot of opportunities to uh, be with people that were your peers. Uh, but for the first time in my Army career, you know, you weren't competing against anybody else for the next promotion. Uh, we all had families and kids the same age, and Carlisle was a really uh, wonderful community to be in, old revolutionary era uh, place with a, lot, with a lot of history. Jim Thorpe had been there. That's where the oh, Carlisle yes. Indian School had been. Okay. 
so it was just a, a, a wonderful time. I was very fortunate. Again, the, the civilian professor I worked for uh, that was mentoring me uh, pushed me to, to take the tenured position. So I did, and I became the chairman of the strategy department after he left and, uh, and went to Germany. And so that was uh, a wonderful opportunity as well. You, when you were talking about Germany earlier, uh, the winters in northern Germany are very different from the winters in Austin, Texas, aren't they? They are, but you know, you, uh, human beings are very adaptable, and uh, actually, the, the northern Germans would tell you that they have more sunshine there than they get in Bavaria, southern uh, Germany. Uh, we were on the uh, on the coastline in an old Hanseatic League uh, German city, Flensburg. And it was really wonderful. The people were more like Scandinavians than they were like the Southern Germans that I'd known. So that was an interesting wrinkle as well. Uh, we lived within a German community because we were a small uh, uh, community, uh, and I was the community commander, uh, which was what a, does that a, a mean? learning <laughs> a learning experience. Well, in addition to the military unit, uh, we had uh, because we were isolated and, and so far north. We had a post exchange, which was like a uh, a Walmart, very small. Yes. We had a uh, a uh, a small medical facility. We had an elementary school, and I was brought over there to <laughs> say hello to the kids once a year and get my picture taken with all the school kids. Wow. Uh, so that's that's something that that is not normal uh, within the military, yeah. and because we we're in the re- remote location. Again, it was a it was a expanding experience for me as far as uh, things I became aware of that I, I it was never my issue when I was at a major post like Fort Sill or Fort Bragg. Sounds to me as though your whole military career was one giant preparation for the things you've been doing since you've been retired. Yeah, and it, it, it's kind of a chicken and egg question. I mean, did, you know, was was I on a path or did I just? take the opportunities the path provided to be able to uh, uh, to become, uh, you know, a professor at A&M and teaching at the Bush School, which was incredible uh, experience, especially the time I was there from starting in 2001 when I retired because uh, President Bush, uh, 41, and Barbara Bush were very engaged in the Bush School. And so it'd be a normal day when I would see them when they were in town. Uh, they lived uh, in the complex right next to where the Bush School was. And you know, a couple of times, the door would open up and there would be the, the 41st president of the United States walking into my seminar room and engaging with the students in discussions. I really had to pinch myself when that happened, wondering uh, you know, what led to that kind of an opportunity for me. But it was just terrific opportunity uh, to get to know, you know, not as a you know, not up close and personal, but to be around the president and hear how he he uh, spoke, to to listen to Barbara Bush and the way she used She's to. She's pretty uh, outspoken, isn't she? Yeah, she would. She would always. She, normally, she sat in the front of the the auditorium or the classroom or whatever. But sometimes she'd be in the back, and and he'd be telling a story or something, and or discussing something with a student, and she'd chip in right away. George, tell him about the time when Valerie Giscard d'Estaing visited Maine. You know. And so that was just a, a wonderful thing. And, and the students, uh, the Bush School students, really appreciated the opportunities to interact because the president and Mrs. Bush were always so gracious and uh, friendly to the students. It was really a, a wonderful period to be there. Again, uh, to our listeners, uh, this is a pre-recorded interview with Joe Cerami, 
And uh, he's, if, if you've been listening for a while, you know that he's got a rather colorful background uh, in all that he's done and, and seems to be uh, been used by God in a lot of ways. And speaking of that, uh, even in the military, uh, were you an influence on the men that you commanded? Uh, were you, you able to be Catholic with them in a way or uh, counsel them? How, how did God use you in that way in your, your position with the military? Yeah, that became very important to me about the time I was a major. So I was in the Army for over 10 years by then. And up till that point, I'd always been in, in very large unit Army divisions or 15, 20, 25,000 soldiers. But when I was a major, uh, I got back into a troop unit up in uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And it was a, a basic training unit, a brigade with basic training and advanced individual training. And the chaplains were very important. They, they were important in the other units as well, but, but they really stood out, uh, especially the chaplain we had in uh, the training battalion I was in. Uh, he'd been uh, an OCS graduate uh, as a, a young lieutenant and then captain. Uh, he was in special operations in Vietnam won the Silver Star. He led uh, long-range patrols of Vietnamese and Americans up into North Vietnam, all of it highly classified, and, and uh, he would talk about it. Uh, but he had an incident where one of his best friend was with him on a fire base, and, and his friend was killed. And uh, he said that really made a, made a had an impact on him. I mean, he'd been around a lot of wounded and killed in action but when his friend was killed it really caused him to pause and think about it and he decided he would con commit himself to God and so he uh, got out of the army went back to Arkansas entered a, a Bible Baptist college uh, became a minister and then he was a chaplain and so he, he went back into the army went back into the army yeah so it, because of his background as an infantryman OCS graduate uh, a, uh, a war hero, Silver Stars, is very uncommon for, for people to get. He had a lot of credibility with the drill sergeants in particular. Mm -hmm. and, and that's and, that's really who runs uh, a training program like that, right? Yeah, the drill sergeants are key players in that. And uh, he he kind of adopted me. I'm not sure why, but uh, he said uh, he needed they needed a, a cardinal for the Quarry Hill Chapel, which is where the our side of the the tracks at Fort Sill where the, the trainees went. And so he appointed me the Cardinal of Quarry Hill and got me deeply engaged in the administration of the chapel activities, which is something I'd not done before. Mm -hmm. And that was a turning point for me as well. I saw the influence that could have on the trainees, the comfort they would get from religious services, uh, how difficult it was to administer all of that sometimes. And so from that point forward, I, I became much more active in my role as a Catholic and working with the chaplains for, and uh, for all the faiths and on all the soldiers as well. But, but I, I, at, you know, more mature at that point in time in my thirties, I really understood the influence that would have on soldiers, not just for their current training environment, but for their lives as well. So in a, in a real sense, uh, what this chaplain did and, and helped got you to help him do is to have basic training in for a spiritual life for these soldiers as well to take through the rest of their lives. That's that's right. That's a good way to put it. Thank you. Okay, so you, you did all that. 
And then you were – let's go back to the Bush School because at the Bush School, you met a lot of other interesting people, some of whom are very authentically Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, I know. You're referring to, to Jim and Meredith Olson who were important mentors. I mean, Jim was, was in the small group that uh, I first met with and, and uh, uh, brought me on board. Uh, we were – uh, the first two in the international affairs faculty, uh, and we, we were brought in because of our practitioner, practitioner background. He, of course, had a, a very successful career in the CIA, and actually Robert Gates, who came back to be president, was the first interim dean for the Bush School, and he had recruited Jim Olson to come because he knew him from his CIA reputation. And, of course, Meredith was in the CIA as well, and uh, they were very engaged in the Bush School, uh, every aspect of what we did there uh, as well, and and good mentors to me during the time I was teaching. And they have a very interesting story to tell, which I think has been told on this program at least once. And uh, if, if uh, those of you who don't know them, uh, I don't remember what Jim's book is, but he has a book that talks about a lot of that that's very good. You can, you can probably find uh, it at Amazon if you do James Olson. So what did you really teach at the Bush School, uh, Joe? I started off, uh, well, I got there right in, in 2001 in August. I'd retired from the Army in July of 2001. I got there in August. They, they really weren't sure they were going to have the International Affairs Program uh, certified yet by the university. So the director at the time, Chuck Herman, asked me to, uh, he said, well, look, I, I can't pay you much, but but I'll give you an office and a computer and... <laughs> What more could a man ask for? You, you can work up a syllabus, and, and uh, I, I, I had the desire to teach at the university level. I was still in the process of writing my dissertation for Penn State. So I took the offer, uh, and then when 9-11 hit, the demand for courses in international affairs went through the roof. Mm -hmm. And so Jim Olson's courses were always oversubscribed, and he had a long waiting list to get in. And then I offered a course on national security policy, which was very much related to what I had taught uh, in the strategy department and as chairman had overseen uh, all of those courses. So that, that was a, a wonderful background for me to be able to draw on to make a contribution to the early years of the Bush School and setting up national security policy program. Uh, into my second year, the dean of the school, who was also a former Army, he was a retired lieutenant general, Dick Chilcote, he came in after Bob Gates and was the first actually full-time dean of the Bush School, not an interim. And uh, he uh, called me in one day. He said, uh, uh, "Joe, I know uh, you really like teaching security studies, but uh, the Bush School really needs a leadership program." And I said, uh, "I couldn't agree with you more, Dean. I think that'd be a great idea. I'm with you all the way on that." He said, "No, you don't understand. I want you to run it." Huh. And, uh, you know, I, I was still used to the Army culture, so I, I mildly protested. I said, well, that really wasn't my area, you might recall, because he had been the, the commandant, the president of the Army War College when I was there, and then he went on to be the, the president of National Defense University, so we, we had been separated for a little while. I said, you might remember that I was in the strategy department, not the leadership department. He said, that's okay, you, you were colonel. You'll know enough about leadership. So we, we started the public service leadership program. Uh, it was, uh, it, that was another interesting thing. I, I'd not really uh, taught leadership, or I hadn't taught leadership at all at West Point or at the War College, but I was around en enough of it to understand the curriculum. Uh, but I had to go back to school. I, I read a lot of the literature to make sure I was grounded. Uh, 
And then I, I, I picked the, what I thought were the leading leadership best practices for leadership development and, and training and research. And uh, I, I uh, did a lot of intensive work on that. And, and then I didn't have any, none of my ideas were part of that early program. What I tried to do was align myself with what the early Bush School documents uh, signed by President George H.W. Bush had said the Bush School was going to be about. We are going to be a school of leadership and public service. And I, I took those ideas. Again, I took the best ideas from the best universities in America and the best scholars I could find. And then we crafted a two-year program where students were, were uh, taking, would take a leadership core course, but then go on and, and volunteer for a, a leadership certificate program, uh, which became uh, very successful. Uh, I had good assistant directors. The one that is still there now, the last one, uh, Holly Kasperbauer, uh, does a terrific job and has continued that uh, in the time that I've been gone. You also spent a brief time at St. Thomas University in Houston. Yeah, I, I served 15 years at the Bush School, and uh, we developed the leadership program, like I mentioned. And then I was called by another former boss of mine, a retired uh, uh, general named Robert Ivany, who had been the last commandant I'd served with under, at the War College. And he had been down in Houston at the University of St. Thomas, Houston, a small liberal arts uh, program. And he'd been, uh, we, we'd had conversations when he first came down to be president of St. Thomas. He'd come up to see General Chilcote and, and say hello. And, and uh, we, we worked a couple of minor programs for a while. And then uh, I hadn't heard from him, uh, but he called me in uh, 2015 in the summer. And he said, uh, hey, I've been advertising this Center for Ethical Leadership at the university and you haven't applied yet. And I said, well, uh, he had called me and told me he was going to do that. And I, I he, again, I said, well, that's a great idea. You know, I'm, I'm fully supportive, but I had no idea. He thought he wanted me to move, move and leave the Bush school. Uh, so I went down there and I interviewed. Um, it was interesting too. I mean, General Ivany, I'd known at Carlisle for a year. And I know he was from a very devout Catholic family as well. In fact, his, his oldest son is a Jesuit priest in Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. And, uh, his other, his uh, son-in-law and his youngest son are, are both army officers. There might be one other son in there somewhere. I'm not really sure, but a very devout Catholic. And I, I'd always ad admired him. Uh, he was a real role model as a armor officer uh, and as a, uh, a thinker about education, higher education. So he, uh, he talked me into it. Uh, it helped that, uh, you know, going back to the beginning, the provost at the time was named Dominic Aquila, and, and he'd grown up in Brooklyn, too, and he grew up in the neighborhood right next to mine. And in fact, the high school he went to was a, was the Catholic uh, high school in my neighborhood, mm -hmm. uh, and he was a graduate of that. So he, he uh, uh, made me very homesick for Brooklyn, but also told me about Did uh, he speak with a good Brooklyn accent? There. He's a little more Brooklynese than I am, but he was there longer than I was, yeah. but a very talented, very... Yeah. Uh, a bright guy uh, there at, at St. Thomas was interesting for me because I was, I was located in the, uh, the center for um, uh, business. Mm -hmm. So I was in the business school and I got to interact a lot with the management and marketing uh, professors and uh, uh, the economists that are there. So, and that was terrific opportunity as well. Again, a completely different direction than I'd ever intended to go in. 
Again, my uh, guest today is Joe Cerami, and uh, he's had, as, as, if you've been listening, he's had a very uh, lively career, and he, he's retired now, and he's very active in the Rotary, but, and I want to, and he still talks, when I'm with him, he talks a lot about the very topics that he's taught over the years, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask him to say something to us about being Catholic in a secular world, and also, uh, any students that might be listening, what message you have for them? Well, being, being Catholic in a secular world for me was, was very easy. I mean, the, all the institutions that I was at, uh, educational institutions, certainly West Point, certainly the Army, certainly Texas A&M, all had uh, core values as part of their mission statement and their operating philosophy. And so for me, it was, it was not a question of theology as, uh, uh, as I, I had never really studied theology since I, I didn't go to a Catholic high school or Catholic college, but the opportunity I had in all those, those organizations and those roles to, to see how, grounded the secular uh, ideas, the secular values were in ca- Catholic social thought. Mm-hmm. And that really came home to me when I was at University of St. Thomas, because I really had to dive into a, a bit of theology to understand the, the role and mission of that university as a Catholic, small Catholic liberal arts college in the heart of Houston. And I found that uh, the ideas were very complementary and they mm-hmm. reinforced the uh, uh, Catholic social thought in a very important way. And that was an important part of my education, too. Now, let's talk about the young people. Uh, when we talked a month or so ago, uh, you had something that you wanted the young people to do, something about getting the experience before they've made a decision that's almost irreversible. Now, what, what do you recommend to the young people? Yeah, the, the, the mantra I've had uh, is is doing is everything. And so it's great to be able to, uh, certainly you want to think ahead of time. George Schultz, the former Secretary of State for the Reagan administration, uh, teaches at Stanford. He's taught there many years now, and he, and he used to teach at the University of Chicago and MIT. He always says you always have to start with ideas, and if you don't start with ideas, you will get lost. And that's very true. But... After you've done that, then it's putting those ideas into action that really matter a lot. And I would preach that to Bush School students quite a bit. And so for, for this community, especially since I've been retired from teaching now, getting involved with Rotary International, getting involved with Junior Achievement, getting involved with the Brazos uh, Interfaith Immigration Network, uh, and with, uh, most recently with St. Vincent de Paul Society is... You, do, you can do a lot of learning from those organizations. They're volunteer organizations for the most part, but they're very important to be able to reflect on, on what your values are and being able to show other people uh, what you're about. And, and plus the people in those organizations are the best people I know. And so I, I always appreciate the opportunity to serve alongside them because I learn a lot about their personal values, how Catholic teaching does guide their activities and their ability to, to make the community a better place. Now, it, it, 30 seconds or less, you said something about internships for young people and never stop learning when, when we had our discussions earlier. Uh, how important do you think that is? Oh, it's, it's critical. And, and I would have lots of coaching sessions with Bush School students, especially, and students at, at University of St. Thomas afterwards, 
about getting engaged, uh, using opportunities for internships or community service, uh, two hours a week uh, working for a community a social organization is invaluable uh, and sticking to it, not going in and out of it and putting it on your resume, but really working and taking on a leadership position within a social club or social organization that's doing good work in the community. I mean, A&M is, is really superb at that, and that's an important part of what the Aggie experience is all about. Well, I thank you so much, Joe. I wish we had another hour and a half because I enjoy talking with you so much. To our listeners, I I really appreciate you. Uh, let us know what you're thinking about programs that we're doing, and I hope, since I won't see you before then, that you have a Merry Christmas. And remember, always, when choosing between the values of heaven and values of earth, round up. I'm alive again.